This morning, what I want to do is I want to take a look at two stories and then talk about those stories. These two stories are from the Gospels. They are miracles in their own right. And as we talk about these two stories, they represent, I think, two different contexts. There are scenarios in which we may find ourselves in or have found ourselves in or, you know, maybe currently experiencing. I want to look at John the Baptist and I want to look at the father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. And while we're talking about it, I just want you to take a moment to consider where you might be, where, what situation that, that you might be in. But John the Baptist, we're going to encounter him in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Where we find John the Baptist at this point is he's in prison. King Herod Antipas has put him in prison because John has been speaking out against the king. The king was not a, uh, a very good guy, and John took it upon himself to, to speak out against the things he was doing. So John is in prison. He's awaiting execution. And uh, while he's sitting in that cell, he sends a question to Jesus. I want to take a look at this question and then look at Jesus' response. But here's, the, here's how it reads. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell them what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So John the Baptist, who is John the Baptist? Well, he's Jesus' cousin. They were born about the same time. But John the Baptist is what's called a precursor to Jesus. He was the one who was preparing the way for Jesus to come. John was a very interesting guy. He went out into the wilderness. The Bible said he, he ate locusts and honey. He had clothes made out of animal skin. He was, he was a weird dude. He was kind of looked like, I don't know if you've seen that TV show, Last Man on Earth, you know, where he had the beard and, and just a weird-looking guy. But the Bible says he was a voice that was crying in the wilderness or crying in the desert, preparing the way of the Lord. So he was, he was announcing that Jesus was going to come, that the kingdom of God was coming. And the Bible records in, in, in the Gospel of John, he didn't write that, it was one of Jesus' disciples. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What John was saying when he said that is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Behold, everyone look and see that Jesus is the Son of God. And then John baptizes him in the Jordan River. He's there when God breaks the heavens and says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. John and everyone there around heard the audible voice of God declare that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. John said about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to wear his sandals, wear the strap of his sandals. John had his own ministry and his own disciples, and now he's in prison hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing. He's going to be executed, and we know how he was executed. He was beheaded. They cut his head off. Some scholars believe that John was, he was resigned to the fact about his execution. He, he had accepted that to some degree. But his question is this. Jesus, are you real? Are you really who you say you are? Don't forget. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hearing God speak, Jesus is. John is tormented by doubt and fear, wondering if he's really real. Wondering if everything that he's lived his life for, he's about ready to be executed. Is this execution, is it worth it? Is Jesus really the Son of God, or should they wait for another? John is in a physical prison, but more importantly, John is in a, a prison of doubt and fear and worry. He just wants to know, God, are you real? I don't know about you, but I found myself there 
wondering if he's really real. Solomon found himself there asking this question in Ecclesiastes. Is it all meaningless? Is it all meaningless? John was faithful. John knew what scripture had said. John knew all the prophecies, but he's finding himself wondering if he's really real. John doesn't need a physical miracle. I mean, I, I would want Jesus to come and get me out of prison. That's what I would have asked for. I would have asked Jesus, hey, bro, if you're real, come do a miracle, break these bars, get me out. He doesn't ask for that. He asks, is he really real? Have you ever found yourself in a spot of profound need and difficulty? God isn't answering your prayer. God hasn't done what you thought he should do. You're not in a spot where you would want, have ever wanted to be. You believe, but yet at the same time you're asking, are you really real? Is all of this really real? I, I'm wondering if, if, if what I believe, what I've given my life to, what I've contributed to financially, my energy, all of that, is it, is it really real? That's what John is asking. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus that question. The disciples come up to ask Jesus this question. Are, John wants to know, Jesus, are you real? Are you the one that they've been waiting for? Or should they continue to wait? Jesus is ministering. He's preaching and he's healing and he's doing all these things. And he says, why don't you come with me? And they witness Jesus preaching and Jesus performing miracles. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, why don't you tell John every single thing that you've heard And what you've seen. Tell John this. The blind see. The deaf hear. The mute speak. The lame walk. The dead are raised to life. And the gospel is being preached. Tell John that. See Jesus knew that that's from Isaiah chapter 61. Which was a prophecy about him. He knew that John knew that. And he he delivers that news to John. I can just imagine John being in in that cell. Completely overcome by doubt and fear. And the disciples come back and they said... This is what Jesus told us. He told us to tell you what we saw and what we heard. What we heard him preach the gospel. What we saw, blind eyes being opened. Deaf ears being opened. Those without the ability to speak, speaking. People who were dead, raised to life. People with leprosy are, are healed. People that were lame and couldn't walk are walking. And he's preaching the message of the kingdom. He's preaching the same message that you said he would preach. And I can imagine John hearing that. And in some way, even knowing he was going to be executed, taking this just deep breath. He's real. Still worried, still concerned that he's going to be executed. But the peace that came over his soul of Jesus revealing himself once again. He didn't have to, but he did. A special revelation of who he was so that John could die in peace. Knowing what he had given his life for had meaning and value. And he was right. He exercised his faith in the right direction. The faith given to him by God. What's amazing about this is, is what Jesus says about John in Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says this to the group, to the crowd. I think this con- conversation to his disciples was in front of the public. The public had, who had followed John and who had been pointed to Jesus by John is hearing the disciples ask Jesus this question. Is He wants to know if you're really real. And Jesus says, you know, tell him what you've seen and heard. And then he says this to the people. He says, hey, I tell you the truth. All who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Some translations say, anyone born of woman, no one is greater than John the Baptist. What Jesus is saying is is that John is the greatest born among men. He's the greatest man. He's even greater than Moses, who was their national hero. John is great. But he says this about John in the midst of John's fear. 
In the midst of John's doubt, he says he is great. He has great faith. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't know about you, but I kind of grew up with this idea somewhere along the way that, that God would only move on your behalf if you never doubted. I kind of grew up with this idea that you, you can't doubt. Like if you're really a Christ follower, you won't doubt. I think that's a lie. You know, we can't manufacture faith. I can't just say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, and feel faith. I think we declare faith, but we declare it realizing it's a gift from God. And Jesus does not condemn John for his doubt and his fear. What does he do? He meets him right where he's at. Jesus does not condemn or abandon John in the midst of his doubt or fear. He meets him right where he's at and declares John has great faith. Jesus responds to the need of John. I don't know about you, but that's comforting. He gives John what John's soul needs is to know that he's real. A special revealing of himself to John. A reminder that could only come from the words of Jesus. Could only come from his mouth. Tell John what you see and hear. And then John would go on to be executed. Having in his soul the peace, the understanding, and the confirmation that he was real. The second story I want to take a look at, different context, different need, is the father and the demon-possessed son. In Mark chapter 9, we read this story. I want to read verses 14 through 27 to you. It says, When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of the religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. And Jesus says, what is all this arguing about? One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening? And the father said, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Jesus, have mercy on us and help us if you can. If I can, what do you mean if I can, Jesus says. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me with overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. And the boy appeared to be dead, and a murmur ran through the crowd that he was dead, But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. This context, this scenario is different. We we don't have a person that is in prison and in needing a, a revelation, needing words of Jesus through their heart. No, we find a father who is in desperate need and a boy who is in desperate need of an action upon upon their behalf from Jesus, to a physical healing to take place. This story takes place right after what's called the transfiguration, meaning that's when Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain. They saw saw Moses. They saw Elijah. God spoke. It was this powerful moment, God revealing himself. They come down the mountain to an argument, to a debate 
amongst the religious scholars and the disciples. See, Luke's gospel, the story's in there too, and in, and in Matthew tells us that this man, this was his only child, his only child. Jesus comes down the mountain and he's listening to an argument, an argument about what's going on, a debate about what's going on. Nobody's helping the father or helping the boy. There's just an argument and a debate. You know what I find interesting? That's often what religion does. It gets people in religious debates and arguments. It, it prevents people from, who are coming into the church or coming into a relationship with God from actually experiencing God because what we want to do sometimes is we want to debate with people and argue with them rather than allow the power of God to impact their lives. That's what I think Jesus is frustrated about here. You are arguing and debating when this boy is possessed by an evil spirit and is being thrown around like a rag doll and has had no relief and the father is desperate. The father is the one that has to speak up amongst all the arguing and say, hey, I brought my son here so you could heal him. Verse 17, you could heal him. But you're debating and you're arguing. How ridiculous is that? We spend so much time trying to figure out who's in and who's out. Whether someone qualifies for God to, to speak to them, whether you qualify to be a member of this particular institution, when God is saying, let me touch their lives. Since when does someone have to be a believer for God to impact their life? Since when does someone have to say, I believe God is for him to do something on their behalf? My great grandfather was an unbeliever for many, many years. He sent his son off to Vietnam. He prayed before his son left that if my son is killed in Vietnam, I want to be able to recognize his face. I want to be able to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is my son and not someone else. My great uncle, Lloyd Dean, was killed in Vietnam, was shot in the head. And when they brought him home, they could open the casket and my great grandfather could identify that that was in fact his son. There should have been nothing left, they said. He said that he then believed that God could hear the prayer of a sinner. And he, he became a believer. The debates and the arguments that we have, we need to stop. I think this is what Jesus is saying. Shut up. Stop debating. Stop arguing. Let's show some action because this world needs a gospel that is seen and not just heard. And I'm going to be care- we've got to be careful. If we, us career Christians, we fall into the debate and the argument. That's what, that's what we're, try- we're being baited into is arguments and debating. We live in a commenting society, not a conversational society anymore. Taking a stand on Facebook is not standing up for your faith. Give me an amen. Come on. It doesn't cost you anything. Sharing some other person's post or article. Go for it. But just... Get out and touch somebody. Have a conversation. Show the gospel. That's what is the, the, the ridiculous nature of this. They're arguing while someone is suffering. They're debating while this father and this son are suffering. And Jesus shows up. And after that man says, teacher, I'm here. We don't even know the father's name. We don't know the son's name. He's anonymous, and I think it's kind of, kind of interesting in the story where they're, they're, they're kind of unimportant in society, so unimportant to the, to, the, to the religious leaders that they don't even mention their name, and the father has to wiggle his way in. Don't you find it interesting Not one of the disciples or one of the religious leaders says, hey, by the way, Jesus, there's this kid over here who really, really, really needs you. They want Jesus to resolve the debate. They don't care about this guy getting healed. I'm not saying the disciples don't care, but at least the religious leaders don't care. 
They want him to, to bring an answer to the debate. Jesus says, I'm going to resolve the debate, but not by anything I say. I'm going to resolve the debate by what I do. Amen. And he says, bring the boy to me. Finally, he says, I'm sick of this. Bring the boy to me. And the father brings his son to him. We don't know how old the son is. He says, what, 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 what's happening with your son? And the father begins to explain the symptoms. And as he's explaining the symptoms, he concludes his explanation to Jesus with, help us, have mercy on us if you can. If you can. He's desperate. See, this man bringing this boy to the disciples and ultimately to Jesus, this is his Hail Mary pass. There is nothing left this guy has. I'm sure he's been around to every doctor, every teacher, everything he knows to do. He's done. He's desperate. This boy needs Jesus. He needs something now or he will probably forever be this way. And he'll probably die, like the father said, being thrown into the fire or into the water. And he says, help us if you can. Some people look at that statement and say, oh, he began to doubt. No, he didn't doubt. He was desperate. Verse 17 tells us he had faith because he said, teacher, I brought my son to here so you could heal him. And Jesus says, if I can. What do you mean if I can? All things are possible to those who believe. And the Bible says, and instantly the father cried out. He didn't even think about it. Instantly, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. What a great statement of faith. Some people like to look at that statement and say, you see, the, the, the father, he just continues to doubt and doubt. No, 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 no. He's expressing faith. Charles Spurgeon, right, the prince of preachers. Read one of his messages, and it's like reading a, you know, a, a commentary, a textbook. He's amazing. He says, this is such a great statement of faith because the moment that we become aware of the faith given to us by God is in the same moment we become aware of the doubt of our humanity. It's in the same. It happens instantaneously. I have faith. Oh, my humanity says I doubt. And sometimes we realize how that our doubt feels greater than our faith. What this guy is doing is expressing to Jesus, I believe, yet at the same time, I acknowledge that I have unbelief and I have doubt and help me overcome that, Jesus. Help me. And Jesus heals the boy, heals him, sets him free. People in the crowd thought he was dead. See, they're still, they're still trying to look for the debate. Still, oh, Jesus killed him. He picks him up by the hand. Jesus doesn't even engage the debate. We don't even know what the debate is, and I'm glad we don't know what the debate is because we'd probably talk more about the debate than the miracle if we knew what the debate was. You know why, you know why I think we like to debate and argue? Because it's easy. It doesn't cost us anything. We, we like to share our opinion and walk away. And I'll be honest, I think we live in such a culture now that nobody cares about what you think or what you believe. They care more about what they believe and that they're right. We live in a soundbite culture, Right? That's why I love Ravi Zacharias. He's the one that says, we need an apologetic. We need a gospel that is not just heard, but seen. The power of God to be on display. See, Jesus didn't come to convince people with an argument and with words. He came with a demonstration of power. And Paul followed suit. You read in Corinthians. I came not with wise and, and whimsical words to convince people. I came in a demonstration of the Spirit's power for God to touch people's life. See, when God intervenes on someone's behalf and does for them what they cannot do for themselves, that changes them more than your debate or your argument with them. People need to encounter God. And may it be said of this church that we don't debate and argue people out the door. We stand up for what we believe. We articulate what we believe. But we allow God to impact people. We allow God to minister to someone. What I love about this is that Jesus does not get into a debate with this guy. 
He does not argue with him about his faith and his doubt. What he does is the same thing he did for John. He did not abandon or condemn him. He drew him in to faith. He created capacity in this man so that he could believe that he was able. There was no if in Jesus' mind. This was not a conditional thing. All things are possible to those who believe. Why did he say that? To the man and for everyone else around. And the man says, he responds to that. If all things are possible, Jesus, I believe. He cried out, help me overcome my unbelief because I want to believe that you are who you say you are and you'll do what you say you will do. These, these two stories, I think they represent profound need. There's profound need in both. The context is different. Context is different. But see, this profound need for each of these individuals is, is that they cannot alleviate it themselves. There was nothing John could do to alleviate that doubt and fear. He needed God to intervene. He needed Jesus to speak. This father, this son, they, they had nothing left. There was nothing else they could do. They needed the intervention of God. What did they need? They needed a miracle. They needed a miracle. You know, to define a miracle is much more difficult than I thought. I have this, Bible, this study program called Logos, and it has like every Bible dictionary under God and man in it. And I read through almost all of them trying to, I, to define a miracle. And guess what? There was not one agreed upon like standard definition. Because there is no like definition of a miracle in a a miracle in the Bible. You can look up the word miracle and it means like power and all kinds of stuff, but everybody's trying to, to form a definition of what a miracle is. Why? Because it's beyond our capacity to understand. We as, a human, as human beings cannot fully articulate what a miracle actually is. So we're throwing stuff against the wall, trying to define it, which just creates the space for worship, doesn't it? When we, have, when we struggle to articulate almost an inarticulatable God, I guess you would say that, I don't know. An inexplicable God, it just creates the space for worship where we stand in awe saying, God, I don't have enough words. I don't have enough information. I don't have enough education to adequately put into words who you are. So I chose the one that I understood the most. Some of them were just so, like, you know, educational and theological, I thought, I don't even understand it. No one else is going to understand it. So this is the one that I chose. I thought it described it well. It said, a miracle is this, an event which unmistakably involves an immediate and powerful action of God designed to reveal his character and purposes. What is a miracle? An, uh, an event which unmistakably involves an immediate and powerful action of God designed to reveal his character and purposes. Yes, God does miracles on our behalf, but miracles serve the purpose of bringing the glory to who he is. These individuals needed a miracle. They needed an event which unmistakably brought the power of God and his character and his purpose into their lives. They needed an immediate event. John, he didn't need a physical miracle. He needed a a, a spiritual miracle. He needed a, a reminder, a revelation of who Jesus was in the midst of his doubt and his worry and his, his fear. The father and the son, they needed a physical miracle. A physical miracle that would reveal the power of God. That would reveal that Jesus Christ was and is and will always be the Son of God. I think what what we learn from this is, is that profound need not only exists in those stories, but profound need exists in our lives. Profound need exists in this life. We will all encounter profound need 
Some of you could raise your hand and say, I am encountering, I have encountered profound need. There's no way around it. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. We will all encounter something in which we need the raw power of God to show up on our behalf. A profound need of such that we cannot alleviate. Where human capacity, human ability exhausts itself, that's where we need God. I think it becomes increasingly more difficult in, in our culture to, to define at that point we need God because we've been, we've been blessed with so much information, so much technology, you know, that we, we, we don't really know. Do I, when, when do I really need God? I always struggle with that. I go to these places around the world where they hardly have anything and they're just trusting in God. Why? Because they're trusting them for everything. In America, I don't trust them for my food. I don't trust them for my, my job. I don't trust them for my medical. I don't, you know, I mean, obviously I know he's done all of it, but I can go to the store and get so many things. You know, it's like, God, when, when do I trust you? And I think we have to rediscover that, but I think we all do have an understanding of when profound need strikes us. Relationships. Emotional things. Sickness that, that no pill, no piece of technology, no doctor can can figure out when we go through the, the death of someone when 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 profound need strikes us i don't have to define it for you because you know what it is in your own personal life we will encounter profound need i know that doesn't make us jump up and down and shout hallelujah but the question <laughs> there you go one person of great faith <laughs> rejoice in the suffering of the lord he tells us to do that but my question is when profound need comes what is it that we do and before we answer what we do, I think we have to take a look at what should we know. What, what is our belief? What is our frame of reference? That's our guidepost. That's what is going to set the course for us. What should we know and understand? The first thing that we should know and understand, and, and I mentioned this, is that God does not abandon us or condemn us in the midst of our doubt or our need. The Bible says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. He does not reject us when we doubt. He does not abandon us. He does not make us feel bad. If you have profound need here this morning, it's not because you've done something wrong. It's not because God is punishing you. It's not because God has left you. It is because we live in a world that has fallen, that is still affected by sin, and God is still with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is allowing it. Why? Beats me. I'll be honest. I don't fully understand that peace of God. I'm not going to stand up here and act like I do. Listen to the message last week. We talked about God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign overall. He is supreme. He is in power. He is in authority. He allows things to happen, but he never leaves us nor forsakes us. He is there in the midst. Knowing that God does not abandon you or condemn you, that is a comforting thing to know that where you're at right now, God is with you. He has not left you. You may have turned from him, but he has not turned from you. His ear is still inclined. His hand is still outstretched. He is with you. And because he's not abandoned or condemned you in the midst of your doubt or fear, you have to understand that he, number two, that he will always meet you at the point of your need. Always meet you at the point of your need. If you wonder where God is, look at where there is pain and need, and God is there. God is present. God is present with those who are suffering. God is present with those who are passing. The Bible says that precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. God is there. I've had the privilege to be in the room when people are passing away and they know the Lord. And he is there unmistakably, undeniably. He's there. 
He meets you at the point of your need. You don't have to like get to a certain point where he will meet you. No, no, he's there. It's an acknowledging that he is there. He is with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He is able. He is willing. He is capable. He is, as Jesus told John, to make the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the dead raise, the lame walk, the heal the leper, and to preach the gospel. He is able. And third, it's in those moments that we understand this. And I'm going to use a word that I don't normally use, but that God imbues us with faith. What does it mean to be imbued with something? It means to be impregnated, to be permeated, to be saturated, to be inspired with faith. Meaning this, God creates the capacity for faith in us. Winston Churchill, when he was speaking to the nation of England, when they were being bombed during World War II, and he would go on the radio, and some of you, if you've never had a chance to listen to his speeches over radio, you should. They asked him one time, what are you going to tell the people? He said, I'm going to imbue them with a character and a resolve they don't even know they have. And if there's one thing that could be said about that generation that came through World War II in England is they had a character and a resolve. You could see them go out in the mornings after the bombing raids and begin to rebuild. And it said that Churchill would walk the streets and even help people and talk to them. But I'm going to imbue them with a character and resolve they didn't even know they had. That's what God does for us. He imbues us with faith. A faith that we could not produce or manufacture on our own. He gives it to us as a gift. He impregnates us. He permeates us. He saturates us with that faith. He creates the capacity in us to believe. And we see this in the story of Jesus and the Father. Jesus asking the Father, how long has he been suffering? If, you, if I believe, of course, of course I can. See, if it were me, in verse 17, when he said, teacher, I'm here so you can heal my son, I'd have been like, bam. But not Jesus. He seems to drag the situation out, doesn't he? <laughs> Tell me, what's going on with your son? Jesus didn't know what needed to go. He already knew. How long? Who cares? Heal him. That's what I would be thinking. What is he doing to the father? He's not being mean. He's not drawing it out to create more pain. What he's doing is is he's imbuing this man with faith. He's allowing him to struggle into faith. See, the struggle with God is never without recompense. God allows us to struggle because it creates character, because it creates capacity in us to have faith and to struggle forward. See, that's the beautiful thing. God imbues us, but he does it. He allows us to struggle into faith. And it is a struggle. But all the while, we know that he's creating the capacity and a deep reservoir of faith in us so that we can believe. Because there will come another time of profound need. And God has left that that deposit of faith in us. And each situation we, we trudge through, the reservoir gets larger and larger, and we can believe. Just like in the song said it was important for us to declare the truth of who God is. And that declaration, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. You're the God of miracles. You're the God who was and is to come. The God, the power of the risen one. Think about that. They didn't, they, God didn't do what they wanted them to do, but yet the resolve was that, God, you're faithful. God, you are able. That out of their pain came a declaration and a song for every single other person who would hear it. They could join with them and declare, God, you are a miracle working God. You do not abandon or condemn me in the midst of my faith. You meet me at the point of my need and you imbue me with faith. That's what we need to know when we encounter profound need. We need to know that. 
So then what do we do with that? I think what we do with that is we just express our faith. Well, how do we express our faith? We do just what the Father did. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I believe, God, but help me overcome my unbelief. That's how we express our faith. We acknowledge that we're doubting. We acknowledge that we're struggling, but we take a step of faith, not an emotion of faith, not the goosey-goosies you get during worship sometimes of faith, a step of faith, an action of faith saying, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you identify with one of the two. Maybe you're like John. And while you don't need something physical, you're going through a very difficult time and you're wondering if God is still here. You're wondering if he sees you. You're wondering if, he's, if he even cares what's going on. You may feel like God led you into something, a new job, a new relationship, and then it got hard. Sometimes we think if it's hard, it ain't God. Sometimes if it's difficult, we think we missed it. It doesn't mean you missed it. It doesn't mean it isn't God. It just means that it's life. And God has not abandoned you. And you need to know that he's God. And you're asking, are you real? Do you see me? Do you hear me? And you need a miracle. You need an immediate and unmistakable intervention from God in your life. Or maybe you're like the father and you you just find yourself in a desperate situation. You need a miracle for yourself. You need a miracle for someone else. You need a miracle in your marriage. You need a miracle for one of your children. You need a miracle emotionally, psychologically. You need a financial miracle. You you just need God to show up and do something on your behalf because you got nothing left. You have exhausted everything you know. You exhausted every job search. You exhausted every doctor. You've exhausted every, every book, every philosophy, every podcast, every Facebook post. Everything you can, you've looked to and turned to has let you down because it is incapable of producing a miracle in your life. I want to challenge you this morning to take a step of faith and saying, God, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. My grandfather passed away uh, three years ago now, a little over three years. I was sitting with him before he passed and talked a lot. And at one point he was telling me as he sat in his chair, he said, Josh, I can, I can, this is days before he died. I can, I can see Jesus. He's in the room. I was like, you can, what does he look like? I couldn't see him. My grandfather could. And he, he described to me what he looked like. I said, wow, that's amazing. And my grandfather looked at me and he said something to me. I'll never forget. And my grandpa was 74 he pastored for over 30 years, loved the Lord, saw God do amazing things, had so much faith, more faith than I'll ever have. And he looked at me and he said, Josh, it's a, I'm relieved to know that he's real. I'm relieved to know that he's real. The moment my grandfather said that, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking, oh man, he doesn't have any faith. I, immediately I thought of the statement from this father, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. It's always a matter of faith. Always. We'll always be stretching. We'll always be be stepping to say, God, I trust you. God, you're faithful. God, I don't know if you're real, but you've done enough for me to keep me stepping, to help me take one more step. I trust you. I believe in you. What about when things don't go the way we want them to? The only response we have is, God, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. 